latest episode of Squashing the Market with Bill Ullman. I am so happy to welcome Nick Williams, founder and CEO of Sally, a company focused on providing professional and tech-enabled support, logistics, and financing to Uber, Lyft, and other ride-sharing drivers here in New York City. Nick is a fintech entrepreneur, and like so many of them, he's quite young, 30 years old, a graduate of the University of Colorado, where he studied math and economics and even Chinese. After that, he did a quick stint at a hedge fund called CQS. After that, at boutique investment bank Greensledge. In 2015, he started and founded Sally, along with his business partner, Adriel Gonzalez. In full disclosure, I am an investor in Sally. We're going to have a great discussion today because uh, we're going to talk not just about fintech and entrepreneurship and investing as we do uh, on this podcast, but also about Uber and Lyft, the ride-sharing industry, the taxi medallion madness here in New York City, and much more. So welcome, Nick. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here today. So Nick, let's start out by talking about the founding of Sally and how'd you come up with the idea and how'd you get to the point in your career, brief though it may have been at the time, to want to do this? I knew that I always loved mathematics, economics, understanding systems and how they work. And so after spending a few years, actually originally in Hong Kong, focused on quantitative areas in finance and then working at Greensledge, where I understood the foundations of structured finance, how cash flows work. I started to think about how the world was changing, especially on the transportation side. This was right at the beginning of when Uber and Lyft were coming to market. Um, and I remember spending a lot of time after work focused on what's going to happen the tra- to the transportation industry. And it was actually my mom who came to me, who was living in Minnesota at the time and needed help getting a car to work for Lyft in her part-time when she wasn't teaching. And I went through the whole process with her, trying to get a loan for a vehicle that she can use for rideshare purposes. And I remember how challenging that process was. And I sat back and actually whiteboarded a lot of what we thought the industry was going to look like 10 to 15 years down the line. And at that point, Adriel and I realized that there was a massive opportunity and a mega shift in the transportation industry, especially on how assets are owned, purchased, financed, insured, maintained. At that point, I just I knew that that was my purpose was to build a business that was focused on the next generation of uh, transportation ownership. So, what was that vision? What what was it about the rise of Uber and Lyft that made you think things are really going to be different? Because at the end of the day, Uber and Lyft are just like taxis; they take you from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. You can hire them over an app, which is different and mm-hmm. new. But how, how does that change the whole industry in your mind? So I think something as simple as an app where people, consumers, college students, adults could consume their transportation needs much more easily than they, they once could. You know, booking a car in New York, you know, calling up dial seven, just having that transparency using, you know, basic iPhone technology really proliferated the use of those transportation services. It wasn't, you know, a novel technology. It wasn't artificial intelligence or anything like that, but it was just the ease of use. It was something that was 10x or 100x easier than what things were a few years ago. And what that did was it opened the floodgates into, wait, does everyone need to own cars? Do I need to own three cars out at my suburban house? Or is, you know, the way that we consume transportation going to be 
much more piecemeal and I can purchase trips in a much more easily targeted approach instead of buying a $30,000 asset, financing that over five years and counting up all of the different expenses that are you know, in connection with that purchase. So Sally has brought a lot of technology into the industry or mm-hmm. you, you've brought a lot of technology into the company. Talk about the role that technology plays at Sally. What are you doing that's different? And then maybe even before getting to that, talk about just Sally itself and what it does in more detail than I talked sure. about in the intro. Sure. So Sally very simply is a vehicle provider and support provider to professional drivers that work in the rideshare space or the yellow taxi space. So we provide cars, insurance, full service maintenance and accident recovery, as well as 24-7 support for our drivers that deal with any number of issues in an average 12-hour day on the road. So we started with Rideshare and most recently got into the yellow taxi business. The central thesis for our business was let's operate in a space that really has been overlooked. That's kind of the plumbing of an entire industry, which is sort of the back end, how cars are purchased, how they're maintained, how they're furnished to drivers, how they're financed, how payment mechanics work on a weekly or daily basis for these drivers that are using them in a very highly utilized way compared to just someone buying a car for their own you know, personal use. So there needs to be best-in-class systems to manage all of the different revenue items and expense items that happen when you're managing a vehicle. So the premise for going into this business was the taxi business and the traditional livery car businesses were very low-tech, very paper-heavy. And so our approach was let's go into an area where there's not a lot of tech-enabled solutions and build best-in-class systems that help us run our business much more efficiently than the average competitor or peer in our space. And so now we're at a point where we've really built great systems for our business and a lot of other competitors and peers and stakeholders in the industry would love to use our, 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 our technology. So everything from reserving a vehicle to how we manage payments. We manage tens of thousands of transactions with different drivers on a weekly basis, and you need to have very clear, transparent reporting to our customers, to our lenders, as well as to our operational team so that they can handle different service requests in real time with accurate information. And have you built all this technology yourself with your team? Yes. And how is that deployed? Do the drivers see any of this technology? So we've built everything in-house. When we started the business, we said, hey, we're going to build this technology and we're going to also build this sort of asset finance business. And some investors, I think Bill even said, that's two businesses. Uh, You should start with one first. But we kept going and we're now starting to see the the returns on those investments, which are, I think, going to be leaps and bounds and non-linear going forward as we want to scale the business and get to 10,000 cars, 20,000 cars, you know, long haul trucking, last mile delivery, Amazon. The technology we've built is all internal operational systems. Um, the best sort of corollary I like to explain is, you know, I, I, I interned at BlackRock. That was actually one of my first internships back in, in college. And I remember working there. This was, I think, right after the um, BGI acquisition. And I remember that they had an entire technology unit called BlackRock Solutions. I think they had a product called Green Package and Aladdin, which were internal systems to help service their institutional clients to understand risk for really big asset management clients that want to understand bespoke exposure to 
you know, whatever the investment approach was, they realized that having good systems and great reporting, it was a differentiator for their asset management business. And we believe the same thing on the transportation side. So the technology we've built is for us first. And then eventually when we get to a point, I think it's going to be very helpful for a lot of our stakeholders, whether it's lenders or customers. So right now there's no consumer or customer facing application. All they see is a best-in-class, totally streamlined process where if they have any requests or receipts or reporting or anything, they can get it in a very quick and easy way. So we come off as a hands-on, black-card American Express support system and not sort of just an application where they can get all their needs. Because these are customers, we believe they really need best-in-class service and support that should come from humans, even though it's tech-enabled. You've mentioned finance a couple times here, whether it's payments going through your system, owning the cars. Let's talk about that financial part of this mm-hmm. fintech story, sure. this financial and technology story. You have to buy cars mm-hmm. and you have drivers on the other side who then want to use those cars and make payments to you on a weekly or monthly basis to be able to perform their services as drivers for Uber and Lyft, et cetera, or yellow taxi, as it may be. So talk about that, that whole chain of where are you getting the money from to buy the cars and then the drivers paying you for those cars. So if we look at the entire equation, we are using a structured financing program where we're going out to either banks or high net worth individuals that want to earn a asset backed return on that money. We can purchase any type of collateral that's consistent with whatever the loan program is. As we purchase those cars, we put them on the road, we hack them up, and then our sales and reservations team is constantly booking those cars with drivers that want to use them. So we have drivers, you know, our our program on the black car side, Uber and Lyft, um, is a minimum of two weeks, and then every seven days they renew that contract. So it's a very short-term product, so we need to have a very vigilant sales and reservations team that has a very active waiting list um, who want to use these vehicles. So how are we compensated for that? We're compensated in higher rates because of the short-term nature of it, the flexible nature of it, and the fact that Uber and Lyft vehicles are you know, now a scarce asset in New York. So you can't just go and put another Uber vehicle on the road. We're going to get to that topic because that's important in this whole story and kind of interesting and quirky for New York City. But let's talk about hacking up. What does that mean? You used that expression before. Explain that to everyone. So hacking up uh, basically means turning a a vehicle that you buy from a dealer or a used car, rental car agency, and getting it ready to be New York City compliant with the Taxi and Limousine Commission. So So called TLC. The TLC. You got it. When you see those vehicles in New York that start with the T and end with the C on their license plate, that's that's a Uber and Lyft vehicle, yep. And that's a vehicle that's been hacked up. That's been hacked up. So it has What to, does that mean? So you have to get the appropriate plates and registration associated with the vehicle, and then it has to go through a either a visual or full inspection at TLC's Woodside facility in Queens, where basically they will test a few different areas of the car to make sure that it's uh, fit to carry passengers and not, you know, doesn't have suspension issues, you know, the, the seatbelts all work, all that, you know, regulatory sort of battery of tests to make sure that consumers that are riding in New York are, you know, in regulated cars. And TLC cars in New York also require extra insurance, not just normal Correct. everyday Correct. auto insurance. Exactly. Cars driving for hire in New York 
are getting into a lot of different accidents. They have different sorts of liability associated with those cars. So the governing body of New York, Taxi and Limousine Commission, requires a minimum liability insurance in New York, which is much more expensive than you know, going out into Geico and getting a personal quote on your car. You, you talked about high net worth individuals and other providers of capital. What kind of rates are they getting? And is there a mismatch between you know, an automobile that's being rented out weekly and a loan, you know, this package of loans against sure. the automobiles. How does that all work? Yeah. So we are going out and getting long-term financing four or five years. And then essentially we have weekly leases. So if all of our customers stopped using our product tomorrow or canceled their leases tomorrow, we'd be in a uh, long-term liability, short-term asset, you know, mismatch. Classic asset mismatch exactly. in the financial services industry. So we have to be very vigilant in one of the metrics that we watch religiously is our utilization rate. But to, I think to go back to your finance question in general, I think the way that we designed the financing part of our business was, you know, a lot of the stuff that I learned working at Greensledge, I saw how a lot of the, the rental car companies or other sort of auto leasing businesses worked where essentially they would have a securitization, you know, which was a structure where you are buying collateral that fits the loan program has different tranches to it with different investors and then different sort of performance metrics are being calculated on a monthly basis to provide transparency to the lenders about how the collateral pool is performing. And essentially we started the business by going out to friends and family and saying, Hey, do you want to give me $25,000? I will pay you nine, 10, 11% and pay your money back over three years. Plus you're going to have collateral in a car. And that was a, a great trade for a lot of friends and family that came in in the beginning. And is the goal over time for your business as you get larger and have a more diversified pool of cars, much larger pool of cars to reduce those funding costs? Because that it seemed to me would be a key to building a more profitable business. Absolutely. I think we're going to be able to hopefully cut our financing costs either by 40% or 50% in the next two years. You know, the last uh, loan program that we executed, you know, we were still teetering on profitability and now we're fully profitable and I think have, you know, have some very strong financial performance. Now with two years of audited financials, been in business for almost five years. I think we're a much more attractive, you know, program for a bank or a quasi bank, uh, you know, financing company to come in and, and help finance us. And hopefully they're lending money to you at a lower rate than the yep. friends and family <laughs> exactly. are doing. Let's talk about the system in New York City. I think it's one of the most fascinating uses of government power uh, and regulation to control the market for taxis and limousines and ride shares. So we have two systems in a way because we have this yellow taxi market that had quote unquote medallions. And maybe you can go into that in a second and what that meant. And medallion prices spiked at all, over a million dollars at one point and now they've collapsed down. That's one thing. And then side by side with that, we have the ride sharing cars and the four hire cars that are out there. And now I think de Blasio and the TLC put in a cap on those vehicles as well in New York in an effort to, I don't know, control traffic or whatever his goals were. Maybe you could talk sure. about that a little bit in that environment and operating in that environment. So I think New York is one of the most fascinating places, especially for this type of industry, because you have a relatively large industry in terms of market cap, and you have 
not so many players operating it because of the regulatory barriers. So if you've got a great operating model, I think you can really thrive. So to kind of back up a little bit, just to understand the history of the industry, in the early 40s, you know, New York City regulators basically started to regulate for higher commercial services in New York so that not everyone could just get in their car and pick up uh, a consumer and take them for a ride and actually charge them for that. Um, so they started making you know, a medallion system where basically you had to have a certain license or permit in order to perform those services and take someone from point A to point B and charge them for those services. So they issued you know, a set number of medallions. You know, I think it was 10, 11, 12,000 um, which really hasn't changed in the past 70 years. They eventually opened up their own regulatory body, the T Taxi and Limousine Commission, in the early 70s. Prior to that, it was actually a different unit within the NYPD. And the TLC, you know, their job and mission is to regulate and ensure that the commerce carried out in the four higher services is consistent with, you know, the regulatory, you know, values um, in New York and to make sure that it's fair and providing consumers with you know, transparent services and, and regulated and which, you know, does add value. So as the population grew in New York and urbanization rates increased over the past 70, 80 years, the number of medallions that were, you know, affixed to yellow cars, yellow cabs uh, stayed the same. So the so fair the price went up, the price went up, the revenue that a medallion could earn increased because the number of fares kept going up as population increased, New York City got bigger, but the number of medallions stayed the same. So that makes sense, uh, you know, thinking about just basic supply and demand. But then what happened is in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, the financial stakeholders in the taxi industry started to get a little bit more creative, providing loan products in different ways to finance the medallion asset where owners could refinance, take out cash. And this kind of leveraged the industry up to probably an, a price point that was um, not sustainable, close to a million dollars before Uber, you know, 2012, 2013. And I can't comment on whether it was the right thing to let Uber and Lyft come in as they did unregulated, but they did come in in 2013, 2014. And basically you've had a deleveraging of the entire industry, the taxi industry over the past five years, where a lot of these very levered operators or owners, other stakeholders in the business, asset prices started to come down because there was now fresh competition in New York that was competing away fair box income from these yellow medallions. When I listened to that story of boom and bust in the medallions, government regulation, I, I, I think of the housing crisis in uh, 2009 and the, and the financial crisis then. It, it almost sounds like a microcosm of that. I think there are very strong corollaries. And so as we've been watching this unfold, and remember, Sally came in as a uh, an Uber and Lyft backer. Great. This is technology coming in here. But in the past few years, we've really looked at the entire landscape, not just Uber and Lyfts, but also yellows and how the yellow industry is made up. And we've seen a massive opportunity, a very distressed market landscape where we can come in as a best-in-class tech-enabled operator and provide services, not just on the Uber and Lyft side, but also on the yellow side, as investors, other stakeholders have come into the market and looked at such a distressed market where they see opportunity, asset price appreciation, cash flow stabilization. And now in the past year, the Taxi and Limousine Commission have stipulated a cap 
on the number of Uber and Lyft licenses, which now has basically stopped the growth of Uber and Lyft in New York. So, But does that mean, is that almost like a shadow medallion in that now the value of a license for an Uber or Lyft car kind of went up automatically mm-hmm. or artificially because of this government Correct. regulation? So unintended consequence absolutely. of what they were planning. We, we you know, I'll, there have been many critiques of the existing yellow taxi medallion system. And now we've created sort of a de facto medallion system on the Uber and Lyft license side. You know, there isn't, you know, trading and, and sort of market practices that exist for the, you know, the Uber and Lyft permits, but they are not issuing new licenses. If you do have a license, you can work for Uber and Lyft. So there is the scarcity aspect to it. We ultimately think down the line, we're going to converge to one license that can do both e-hail and street hail, which is yellows. And right now, I think we're actually the first company in New York that offers both of those services and are going to work towards creating a joined product that makes sense for New Yorkers. Let's uh, come back to Sally for a moment and talk about the growth you've experienced and ma- and how you and Adriel manage that growth, what the challenges are as entrepreneurs, as uh, managers as uh, people seeking funding for that growth. When I met you five years ago, four and a half years ago, you had a eight-page PowerPoint presentation. You had zero revenue. You had no cars on the road. And today you're at 400, 500 cars? 750. 750 cars. Incredible. Talk about that growth in four and a half years. How do you manage that? What have you been doing? Um, a lot of blood and sweat. I, I think Adriel and I, in the first three years of the business, it's, it's, I hate the term blocking and tackling, but it's getting up, failing, going back to the drawing board, getting up, failing, going back to the drawing board and doing that 10,000 times and just persisting every day you get up and you persist and you just figure it out. This, this was a very unique business because it requires getting a lot of capital and buying cars, figuring out where to put those cars, finding drivers for those cars. So it's very expensive to get this up and running. So in the beginning, it was literally going to tens of hundreds of people and asking for money to go buy a car and then pay them back over three years. And, you know, eventually you go, you find two or three people do it then they tell their friends, then you get 10 people involved, then you get 50 people involved, and then you get one big guy who wants to take all the 50 guys out. And so it's literally, I mean, when I look back at the first three years of the business, it was just so much blood and sweat to just keep going, keep making progress, keep adding cars, keep increasing revenue. And now, you know, you get past a point, and I think we got to that point. I think the pivotal point for Sally was actually um, about a year and a half ago. I remember when I got an email from, started to get an email from a few different investors, and I, you know, I saw the news myself that the TLC was thinking about putting a cap on Uber and Lyft vehicles. And I think we had, I don't know, 150, maybe 175 vehicles on the road. And I realized we were still, you know, the break-even point was three or 400 vehicles. And and I saw the news and I was like, okay, if this goes into effect, we essentially can't add any more cars. We can't get to profitability. So I sat there with Adriel and we kind of reviewed all of the research that was out there. 
and basically, you know, said, let's take a bet. The bet was, let's buy as many cars as we possibly can before this legislation goes through. We looked at when the legislation would potentially go into effect, when de Blasio would sign it after it gets, you know, approved or whatever at city council. So we knew we had two, three weeks. And I think we bought about 250 cars in a weekend. How do you do that? What dealer has to, where do you go to get 250 automobiles? You call up Enterprise and you say, give me every Camry you have in the United States. The next step was we wanted to get those applications through the TLC before the, the cutoff date. So we, you know, we're working all weekend to get, to build a system to basically automate the application through the TLC um, so that we would beat the rush. Because I think the rest of the market wasn't really sure if it would go through and they were kind of sitting on their hands. And then we got all of the applications through, but a few. And then Monday came around, and then the TLC website started breaking. Everyone had issues, and then next thing you know, the cap is in. Um, and then, and what was the du- actual number that they capped these cars at? Was it like a hundred thousand or um, something? Or? I think it was under a hundred thousand, but. The market has natural churn to it where a lot of individual drivers that have their own licenses, their own personal cars, just decide not to work for Uber and Lyft anymore. So they don't renew the license. They don't renew the insurance because it's very expensive if you're not working for Uber and Lyft. So the market's actually shrinking every month. So part of the bet that we've made in the past year is that the Uber market's going to get better, you know, for the people that stay, that can stay and have the capital to stay. And then, you know, the yellow market's going to stabilize and get better as well. So we're in a, a really good position, we think. But back to that moment, so we got all the applications in and then we were still working in, you know, sort of like a WeWork space. And we then had semi-trucks with 16 car loads on them arriving to a very busy intersection in Long Island City to some warehouse that we found. And then, then the game was... Over the next four months, these cars were going through different inspections. We had to build a logistics process, which cars go where. We had a long-term storage facility in the middle of New Jersey. We were waking up every every day at 4.45 a.m. to basically go with 10 drivers and take those cars from Long Island City to the middle of New Jersey and so that we can sequence them appropriately for their inspection because parking in Long Island City is not cheap. And that's where your headquarters are. And it's pretty much the headquarters city for all Automobiles for transportation transportation in New York City. Exactly. Um, Fantastic. So obviously funding's been a challenge and you seem to have dealt with that. Talk about hiring. Talk about software development. Talk about other issues, just general management issues of running and growing a company So that's doing it so rapidly. I've kind of known this or you always read about it, but I think I've now really experienced it in the past few years. You know, every business is about people and hiring the best talent is a core value at Sally. So we have a very rigorous interview process. We go through a gunnery of tests and you don't always have time for that when you're growing and you're bootstrapping things quickly. But now we're in a period where we can properly hire and take time and be very thoughtful about who we bring on our team. So I think there's like a few different vintages of people at Sally. You know, there's like the original founders, then there's the first few employees, then there's vintage one, vintage two, and they dealt with different challenges at Sally, right? Because when you started with just four guys in a WeWork space, every day you're getting up, you're like, I don't know, is this company going to make it? And now, you know, we're a real company um, or a little bit closer to a real company. So I think hiring and inspiring and guiding human beings that work at the company is one of the most challenging things I've ever done. And it teaches me every day on how to just interact with people and understand different communication needs and working to figure out how to motivate people in different ways. It's just very multidimensional and 
also very exciting and fun thing to do. I really enjoy it. The, this podcast is about fintech and investing. And one of the things I love to talk about with my guests is their own investing. Most of them are frankly running companies and that's their biggest asset, but most also have some discretionary investments. How do you think about that for your future? How do you invest? Is it programmatic? Is it ad hoc? Do you have a plan in place? What do you do with your personal investing? I may be a bad example because I unwound my 401k uh, when I started the business and put all of my money into Sally, which is probably not the most wise thing to do. But, you know, I, I figured why not make the biggest bet on myself and something that I can control. But, you know, as you get older, you have different liabilities. You need to be a little bit smarter with diversification of your money. So I think earlier on, you know, you should take more risk. But now if I did have, you know, discretionary income and I was investing that, you know, I would probably think about a three-pronged approach in terms of, you know, active management. You know, I, I like look at sort of like five or 10-year theses and kind of put my money into, you know, whether it's equities or, you know, some sort of debt that uh, expresses that thesis. For example, you know, one thesis that I think is going to happen over the next five, 10 years is, you know, the whole dealership model, subprime auto finance, the way that people are purchasing cars. There's a lot of ways to express the, the shrinking of that market. So I would probably find ways to express that thesis. And then, you know, so I probably put a third of my money towards like some of those longer term theses. I probably put a third of my money in sort of stable, high yielding, very solid fundamental public company equities um, that have, you know, high dividend yields. And then I probably put a third towards growth trends that are not as risky as your like long term 10 year thesis but are consistent with, you know, some of your values and the way the world is going to work um, over the next five years. So the last thing we do on squashing the market is we have what's called a lightning round where I'm going to give you pairs of words and you're going to just pick one. You don't even need to say why. So here we go. Uber or Lyft? Lyft. Own a car or lease a car? Own a car. Google or Apple? Apple. Self-driving cars or cars driven by people? Self-driving cars. Queens or Manhattan? Queens. Squash or tennis? Squash. FinTech or traditional banks? Traditional banks. Learning Chinese or learning to code? Learning Chinese. Netflix or Amazon Prime? Amazon Prime. The last one I have to ask, even though I hate going into the political arena, it's my guess. De Blasio or Bloomberg? Bloomberg. Thank you, Nick Williams. It's been great having you on the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure.